The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. So you'll often see some of these breaches cut by other vein generations, which are forming probably between those dilational cycles. Then there's these more passive cycles, which might have increments of smaller opening, where we're forming these nice crustiform, coliform veins in between those episodes. So we get the cyclicity. Welcome back. This is Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast comes to you from the Society of Economic Geologists. We are sponsored by ALS Goldspot Discoveries, a technology company that believes in the power of combining expert geoscientists with data analysis and artificial intelligence. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in PetroScience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode. Gold deposits always create a buzz. And there was plenty of activity last week at the Korshak for the AME Roundup Conference in Vancouver. You just heard Dave Reese talking through the textures in drill core from a display of low sulfidation mineralization. Gold can occur within copper gold porphyries to the near surface low sulfidation epithermal environment with a wide variety of styles of mineralization. But what are the key observations as we move from deep to shallow? How did we come to understand epithermal deposits and the relationships to intrusions and the paleosurface? And how important are our structural observations? This episode covers all of this and more as gold finds its way to the surface. First off, we're going to hear about K92's project in Papua New Guinea. With an operating gold mine and numerous targets, Chris Mahler, VP Exploration, has a lot on the go. Good thing he discovered exploration geology at an early age. Believe it or not, my grandparents on my father's side were avid gemstone collectors and they had cabinets full of treasures that they'd amassed from all around Australia and elsewhere. And I would spend time as a toddler, you know, looking at these rocks and minerals with awe. And added to that, my brother and I, we started travelling with my parents at a very young age with Papua New Guinea being one of the main destinations. And so we actually visited Bougainville when I was a child, and we saw the massive Panguna copper gold mine in operation when I was just 10 years old. So it was on that same trip that we met an exploration geologist working in the nearby Shortland Islands, which is politically part of the Solomon Islands. And we stayed with him in his exploration camp, and I thought, this was a life. Yeah. So in high school, I studied geology, and then I launched straight into studying geology and geophysics at uh, Macquarie University in Sydney for my undergrad, and did my honours degree at Coes in the University of Tasmania. And that was sponsored in part by Ivanhoe Mines, formerly Indochina Goldfields, studying a SCAN prospect in eastern Thailand. So this honours project was facilitated by Doug Kerwin, the legend. He gave me my first gig in Kalimantan, Indonesia, and immediately upon completion of my honours, in fact, literally, I was told, get on the next flight, having uh, spent a year in Tasmania. And uh, I was fortunate to work in Indonesia for a while, then Africa, then Mongolia and China for a few years. And I then started working out in Papua New Guinea 18 years ago and doing a, a PhD part-time, actually, on the site, on night shifts, basically, or during my short breaks. And that's a, a combination of genetics and geology, so a biogeography project, if you like. Right. But it took about seven years to complete on the site. Cool. But the rocks are still calling you. Yeah, no, I still got the, the real passion for rocks, without doubt. So I was... For the last 18 years, like I say, and in Papua New Guinea, I've uh, spent time on some of the biggest projects in the country, including uh, Wafi Golpu and the Simberi Gold Mine Restart, where you were sometime before. Wow. And okay. uh, for the past six years, I've been managing exploration for K92. Right. So tell us about this property that K92 has and Kainantu. Is that the right pronunciation? That's correct. Yep. Right. That's where the okay. name comes from. Obviously, the abbreviation, after the numeric abbreviation for Kainantu, and it seems to have really stuck. Okay. So yeah. uh, the Kainantu Gold Copper Mine is uh, located in Eastern Highlands Province, and that's just two hours drive from Ley, where there is an international port. Right. So we have a road all the way to the mine yep. from Ley, and there's an airstrip just a few kilometers from the mine. That's very handy. So, you know, 
geographically and from an infrastructure perspective, it really is ideally situated. Right. And of course, in terms of the geological setting, which is probably the main question. Absolutely. It sounds a little complicated to me. Yeah, it, it is. And it isn't in that uh, it's situated within the New Guinea origin, which is comprised of a series of fold and thrust belts together with associated intrusives come volcanics. And this is a very large mountain range that spans the entire length effectively of the New Guinea mainland. And obviously within that, we have several famous porphyry and epithermal gold and gold copper deposits along that chain, including Octedi, Frida River, Porgra, Golpu, Hidden Valley, and then Tolakuma as well. Right. But this range, since it extends all the way through the Indonesian half of the island, you also have within this belt Grasberg, the world's largest gold mine. So that's, uh, you know, just below Punjak Jaya, highest mountain between the Himalayas and the Andes. So it's a really significant origin that's uh, been uplifted. It's a belt of giants. Yeah, giant mountains and giant deposits. So at Kainantu specifically, and the host rocks are both a, a mix of metasediments and intrusives. So And most of the main veins at Kainantu that we're focusing on are actually in the former, in the metasediments. Okay. So the Kora and Judd deposits that we're mining are quartz vein breaches and massive sulfide that are vertical or near vertical, and they're several kilometres long and well over a kilometre in dip extent, such that each vein load is actually kilometres in area and typically two to four metres wide. Right. Is there a discovery story or was K92 involved in that? With Cora? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a potential for discovery and the high likelihood of that, which led K92 to actually be established to right. acquire the Kainantu gold mine from Barrick. And at the time, the Cora deposit was known only from a fairly small area situated approximately 1,000 metres along strike from the existing underground operation, as in Irimafimpa. Right. And that contained a resource of 1.6 million ounces gold equivalent at seven grams gold and more than 2% copper. So K92 acquired the property from Barrick when Barrick was retracting effectively from the Australasian region several years ago. So the game changer for K92 actually came at an early stage in May 2017 with the discovery of the Cora North deposit. And that's now known to be part of the overall Cora consolidated system, we call it. Right, right. So then uh, K92 started the Cora mine project by completing that underground incline drive from Irimafimpa to Cora and commencing underground drilling. And so since August 2017, the operations have been focused on the Cora deposit and more recently on the Judd deposit with underground drilling and development. Right. So you've got this whole operating mine system in these veins, uh, breccia load veins. What kind of system do you call that in terms of deposit genesis? It's hotly debated in terms of which pigeonhole to place this deposit in because it is unique in a lot of ways. But I feel safest, I guess, putting it into the category of intrusive related in that it has characteristics of forming at quite some depth, not just the mineralization, but the crenulation surrounding the loads, and it's very intensely crenulated, is more indicative of really deep formation, you know, some kilometers depth. And the loads themselves fairly well devoid of any typical epithermal banding, that sort of thing. And it's mostly just massive charcopyrite plus or minus bornite. Interesting. So can you tell us just a bit more about the vein mineralogy and the perigenesis? Well, I can certainly elaborate on it. So there's this quartz-rich, gold-dominant, cryptocrystalline quartz that's within the breccia, and that's got the high-grade gold associated with tellurides mainly, for example, uh, calaverite. Right. But then there's a sulfide-rich uh, copper-dominant stage. It's this massive charcopyrite with quite a bit of bornite associated with it as well. So in terms of the hydrothermal stages, the earliest period following presumably the crenulation, you know, the structural opening of these major lineaments, the earliest period of that alteration appears to be uh, silicification together with a fuchsite alteration of the philic wall rock. And then you've got a stage that comprises uh, this coarse grain quartz with typically uh, euhedral pyrite. Following that, there's a gold-dominant mineralization that I mentioned with the quartz vein breaches. And then uh, finally, this fourth stage where you've got gold intergrown with chacopyrite and bornite. So I guess it could be quite regarded as quite unusual. But in this case, we've got very clear evidence for that massive copper sulfide to have formed following the gold-rich quartz event. So the crenulation you describe, you think that's coincident with ore formation? Or is the vein just emplaced in that rock? 
block that's already been deformed? Yeah, I mean, that is a good question. I'd say there's been multiple reactivation. I would say it's probably formed as a precursor to mineralization because there's quite a bit of shearing. There's also evidence of myelinitic type fabric, which may well have formed at the onset to the mineralization Oh, interesting. It's yeah, quite an unusual system, without doubt. Awesome. Okay. So moving on, let's look at the whole project and think about the context around all these different kinds of prospects you've got and the kinds of mineralization you're finding, because I think that's really interesting too. Yeah, sure. So the Kynantip project itself consists of multiple deposits and prospects, which are, I think, likely to be explicitly linked. And the property obviously contains a number of veins that are similar to Cora and Jad that are being mined, but they are yet to be properly evaluated. So that includes the Karempa vein system and the Maniapi and Arakompa loads. But we've also found a number of new deposits and extensions to the known ones, including obviously the Blue Lake Porphyry, a novel discovery. There's a very prominent lithocap that's several kilometres of area. You can see these lithocaps from many miles out in that as you drive towards the site, there's huge boulders, you know, car-sized boulders of massive silica that fill the drainages and, uh, you know, cross the highway effectively. So I'd say that there was a much larger lithocap at one point in time, but now though it is approximately 10 kilometers of strike by a few kilometers wide, it seems that this is actually concealing a number of porphyries, including the Blue Lake porphyry, which we've now delineated to a degree. Yeah. So we never did actually say how big is this area that you're exploring? There's actually 836 square kilometers of tenement that we have under license. So we've got a, a huge area and the Kainantu intrusive complex, if you will, if you could call it that, that's actually the area where there's a distinct concentration of veins as well as surrounding porphyries is approximately eight kilometers diameter. So in terms of timing, there are actually two main intrusive phases in the area. And these are intrusives that are what are called Akuna. This is a particular village in the area. They, these uh, formations take their names usually from villages that were around at the time of the geos doing the work many moons ago. And the Akuna intrusives are early Miocene, around sort of 25 million years ago. And the Elendora peak, actually, mountain peak name, that's uh, mid to late Miocene in age, approximately 8 to 12 million years of age. And so from the limited dating that has been done and from cross-cutting relationships, it's evident that porphyry and intrusive related copper gold mineralization in the Kainantu region is actually related to the later Elendora-style porphyry intrusions. But a series of magmatic or intrusive pulses over a good 10 to 12 million years. Yes, but two distinct phases, really. Yeah, we've got to do a lot more age dating. That's something that's on the list yeah. for 2023. Yeah, interesting. So you think in that lithocap you described, there's potential for a high sulfidation style of mineralization? That's a very good question. In uh, the early stages of the Blue Lake exploration, we actually reported some very uh, fancy grades of copper and gold and obviously arsenic as well, but that obviously accompanies the, the overprint. We actually thought that we may have something that might be worth exploring further in terms of anagite breaches, but it so turned out that that anagite formed in the very roots of the lithocap, so much of it has probably already been eroded off, and what we're left with is just fairly uh, vestigial or residual anagite, which is a really dark uh, form of anagite too, suggesting quite deep formation together with pyrophyllite, another indicator of having formed in the root of the lithocap. So I think there may well have been a high sulfidation over Blue Lake and there may well be others in this huge lithocap. But I think for the most part, looking at the clays that we see, we've probably lost most of it out to sea, I'd say, which is good if we're looking for porphyries at shallower levels. That means they're much closer to the surface. So that's kind of a good thing. Yeah, that's a good news story. So what about alteration in these systems? What's happening exterior to these breccia veins? And, you know, presumably the porphyry systems are more standard porphyry type alteration. But what are you seeing around these load veins? And can you differentiate between the alteration and the than the metamorphic assays? That's a really good question. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, definitely hydrothermal alteration is not so widespread in the metasediments. And obviously that's the main country rock for most of the loads. However, this has actually worked in our favour, of course, because these metasediments are so impermeable that the fluids have been unable to penetrate far beyond the vein boundaries. And therefore they have concentrated the metals locally in such veins. And they're just really brittle, hard uh, rocks that sound like, you know, when you hit them with a hammer, like you're hitting massive silica, they're just really tight. Yeah. 
but it does pose a challenge, as you intimated, uh, for exploration because we don't have much of a, a halo. And so we really have to rely on structure for, for planning, you know, the drilling and, and geochem. Mind you, we do pick up these uh, veins in geochem. They're quite obvious. So long as we keep the spacing to, uh, you know, a nominal spacing, so it's literally a few metres between samples when we know we're chasing specific veins. Right. So that surface geochem can be really useful even beneath the cover. But in terms of seeing altered rocks to target the veins, that's uh, particularly challenging. But like you were alluding to, I think the, the porphyries, it's a different story in that porphyries that we know about on the Kainantu project, they are all hosted within the uh, volcanics instead or intrusives, mostly granodiorite. So their uh, footprints are much more obvious and then therefore the vectoring is quite straightforward. So like I was saying about Blue Lake, yeah. which we discovered in uh, 2017, that's a, a large, you know, plus 10 million, million ounce gold equivalent porphyry with a very large volume of altered rock surrounding it. And obviously the lithocaps largely eroded, but you're still left with a huge philic halo beneath that. So honing in on that using your typical geo one-on-one vectoring <laughs> tools, uh, looking at alteration of assemblages that's worked very well for that particular program but and it will for future porphyry targeting programs but for the veins yeah a different story altogether yeah interesting so we've talked about some challenges along the way here in exploring this big property maybe if you could tell us a little bit about what the local community and the local people are like and how those relationships as you explore are developed absolutely and you know we're undertaking exploration activities over a very large area so it requires an extensive engagement with the local landowners to ensure that the communities are uh, not only informed as to what the proposed activities are but they have to be fully consulted and supportive of the programs that we undertake right so including this as part of the the timeline, the scheduling for accessing and exploring these areas can add a lot of time to the exploration process. But it's critical because uh, we need, obviously, the ongoing support yeah. of the local communities, you know, for the exploration work that we do do. But it's not easy stuff to navigate. No, no, it's not. I mean, fortunately, we've got a very good team that are involved in the community relations side and that are uh, actually actively on the ground. It's a huge part of the workforce, in fact, that are engaging with the community on a daily basis. And Gain On Two is made a very big effort to spread the love, so to speak, with the community. And we're talking about a community that's approximately 20,000 within a project impact area of 500 square kilometres. So in this area, and they've got very limited access to basic health, educational services and facilities. And so the local level government actually benefits from any projects that we put together in our mining project agreements. So we've got a whole heap of initiatives underway, which include joint ventures where there's long-term empowerment of the community through development of local expertise and local community owning fixed assets. And obviously there's employment, local hiring is prioritised together with developing the long-term transferable skills. So the capacity building, and also we have a lot of health initiatives. It it does sound like collaboration, not you just deciding what you think should be done. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there's a huge amount of consultation yeah. like you say and it's uh, that's really shaped our strategy with how we engage with the community so that it's a win-win for all and we've mm. been exceptionally fortunate to be able to have gained access to the great majority of the leases yeah. with full support from the community and uh, that wasn't the case in the past you know so we're able now and to explore in areas that have never been touched with exploration means excellent i know a lot more than i did i think it's a fascinating project all i can say is watch this space for 2023 because there's a lot happening you know a very significant exploration budget commensurate with the performance of the mine so all the profit back into the ground to try and find more coras and more more porphyries. So it is an exciting time for canine 2 mining. Next up, Richard Silito and John Thompson are back to share their insights and experience in a host of epithermal environments. It's a, a subject which obviously excites people and there's a lot of great work and a lot of things to think about. So let's just dive into the geology and maybe we can start with where some of our ideas came from in the early history of understanding epithermal deposits. 
Great to be with you again, Richard. Uh, yes, when you think about that history, what do you think are the key kind of major points that came through, the breakthrough moments or the, the biggest contributions? Well, in the early history, I think, without going back into the dim and distant past, was probably Waldemar Lindgren's recognition of Sinter and its significance, Silicious Sinter, and he recognised it as being where thermal waters exited at the surface, and he recognised the milestone Sinter, just on the edge of the Delamar district in Idaho, and explicitly explained the significance of it. Certainly by when he wrote his first textbook in, in 1913, 13 years later, he was fully aware of that epithermals were formed close to the surface. And interestingly, he considered then that they required a magmatic contribution. He wasn't very explicit about that, but he also recognized as well that they could form from acidic solutions and also from alkaline solutions. Incredible. Yeah, which of course is a prelude to things I'm sure we're going to talk about a bit later in this podcast. As always, when we talk about Waldemar Lindgren, you get the sense that we haven't really made a lot of progress. <laughs> <laughs> well, he certainly got the outline right, as far as I'm concerned. Extraordinary. They invent the term epithermal until a, a very short paper that he wrote a couple of pages in economic geology in 1922, when he set up a classification scheme for, for mineral deposits. And that was when he introduced the term epithermal in the context that we currently understand it. Yeah. So his contribution was immense. And then as we kind of move forward, you know, we have people like Don White at Steamboat Springs and people exploring and beginning to do research in, in Mexico. And then the you know, huge contribution from the team in New Zealand and DSIR as they were with Dick Henley, Jeff Enquist, Pat Brown, Terry Seward, Werner Gigenbach and so on. Uh, to me, you can't uh, underestimate the importance of that understanding that came from that geothermal work. Well, I think that was the great benefit that accrued from all that work. They were working on geothermal systems and they were able to relate those geothermal systems to the fossil systems that we were viewing in the epithermal environment, specifically, I think, to um, what we now call low sulfidation systems. So they weren't looking really at the full spectrum, although um, the classic paper by Dick Henley and Ellis in 1983 did recognize the two types of systems, one, the classic New Zealand geothermal thermal type, the typo volcanic zone systems, and the systems that were centered on uh, on volcanic edifices, stratovolcanoes, and very different hydrologies, of course, in the two. And, and that was the I th probably the initial underpinnings of classifications that were subsequently set up. Yeah. You know, at that, that point, we started to understand gold solubility as well. And so, to some extent, that focuses on very dilute fluids. And, and there was a lot of talk about, obviously, the role of meteoric fluids, circulation and so on. But in Mexico, again, you know, there was this kind of visible connection into the replacement bodies, the uh, carbonate replacements, and even into SCARN, which sort of raised some questions for those systems. Well, I mean, th those were covered by the deeper drilling, really. I mean, yeah. let's say in the silver belt, the famous silver belt of central Mexico, we have epithermals, which we now, we now, most of them we would call intermediate sulfidation epithermals, more of which are none, and also carbonate replacement and scarn deposits of base metals with a lot of silver, both in outcrop. But in the deeper drilling, it became very apparent, I think, that um, several of these intermediate sulfidation epithermals were in fact the shallow parts of systems that had intrusions at depth and um, with carbonate replacement and scarn deposits attached to them. Even famous Fresneo district, that was in, indeed the case there as well. Yeah. Although, although the economics of the system are, are pretty well exclusively in the epithermal environment. And re remarkable, incredible veins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then we kind of had this next period of revelation to me was when, and this was one of your contributions, was the realisation that these energite-rich sulphide bodies were actually connected to magmatic hydrothermal systems, porphyry systems and so on, and were not, as had been said by some volcanogenic massive sulphides. And, and that started then this whole period of really looking hard at those deposits. Yeah, well, I was lucky, I guess, to get familiarized in the late 70s, very early 80s with uh, with Lepanto in the Philippines, which of 
course, has become quite a classic deposit in subsequent research, but also to get into what was Eastern Europe then, still part of the Soviet Union, and see deposits like the Bohr district in what's now Serbia, was then Yugoslavia, and also the Rechk district in Hungary, where there's a, a very clear energite deposit in the shallow parts of a deep porphyry and scarn system, which was drilled in Soviet times. So, um, yeah, I was lucky to see these things in different environments, and it became very obvious what the connection was to deeper porphyry systems. Yeah, and that paper had a big impact on both Anne and I, because we were busy exploring this funny little Tamora deposit in New South Wales, which turns out to be a 400, 410 million year old, what is we now recognize high sulfidation system. But at the time that it was discovered, of course, there was lots of confusion about which part of an epithermal system did it fit in. And people from New Zealand suggesting it was really the upper silicious part of the system at the boiling table or above. And, and clearly that didn't make much sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that around about that time is when the distinction started to become apparent between, I think that was 83 three, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, when the distinction started to be made between um, between the two major types of epithermal deposits that really form under separate sets of conditions. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it was hot topic then. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely hot topic. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, that led to this period where we grappled with terminology and classification and came up with a whole suite of different names for these different deposit types. I mean, we kind of got the end members. Deciding what to call them turned out to be more difficult. Well, there were th- I think there were three classifications, Drew, really, that were almost coincident in time. Well, I, I, might, I might add that when I, well, I don't think I'd ever seen an epithermal deposit, <laughs> I classified these as alkaline and acid, really yeah. following Lindgren. That was back in 77. But the three real classification schemes was Hal Bonham's in 86, where he distinguished high and low sulfur. Then the USGS system, which was Pamela Heald and USGS co-workers that they had the um, in 87, the Agilaria sericite and acid sulfate subdivision. And the same year, 1987, was Jeff Hedenquist's low and high sulfidation. So the USGS were really classifying on the basis of mineralogy and, and all, well, alteration mineralogy more than anything else. Whereas Jeff's classification, there's sulfidation state of key sulfide minerals in the two types of deposits. Which is, of course, where we ended up, really. I mean, I don't, you don't want to think of it as winners and losers because it was all an evolution of thinking, really. But yeah. we ended up with the, the low and high sulfidation and then inserted the intermediate to consider things like the Mexican deposits. Well, I mean, yeah, but in 93, I, I split the what were called low sulfidation then into low sulfide and low base metal types right high sulfide high base metal type yeah. that was a prelude really to jeff hedenquist intermediate sulfidation category i didn't realize that they these were actually intermediate sulfidation state i was contrasting really a lot of deposits in japan that i became familiar with and deposits in the philippines and indonesia and all of them were, were grouped as low sulfidation but it became obvious there were two very different types in there yeah. so i was glad you mentioned hal bonham a moment ago i mean hal is an important part of my memory in this area and particularly because of his encyclopedic knowledge of nevada you know, i remember mm. driving through nevada and him pointing to the hill and seeing a drill rig and telling us exactly what was being drilled at that time and <laughs> he had an amazing amazing knowledge base but i also remember the paper that you wrote with him about volcanic landforms which kind of put these deposits again in the surface landform context and by some inference therefore into their tectonic setting as well and i thought that was a really important kind of piece of work yeah and just as in this in a little historical context as well i mean when when hal came up with his classification into high sulfur and low sulfur he actually presented that at the Volcanological Congress in New Zealand. So that was a bit of an eye-opener, I think, for quite a few New Zealanders back at that time. <laughs> well, Hal always had an ability to raise a few eyebrows. So anyway, that took us into where we are now with the low, the intermediate, and the high sulfidation. And now we'll get a little bit, starts to get a little bit provocative, perhaps, for some people. And um, I think most people accept the magmatic role in high sulfidation, and most people will be very comfortable with an important role of the intermediate sulfidation. But low sulfidation still gets a little bit of debate. And so when you think of the, the true real rift environments, say like the, the East African rift, is that a viable epithermal environment? And can you really make good epithermal deposits with no magmatic contribution. Yeah, can, can we just, just leave that just for a few seconds? Because Absolutely. I think 
There's another, there's another important stage in Genesis that precedes the considerations like that. Yeah. And that was up until the 60s, I would say. Most people were accepting that there was a magmatic contribution to epithermal. Right. But we started to get all the, the light-stable isotope, the oxygen-hydrogen isotope work, led by Hugh Taylor. And, and that showed the fluids were essentially dominated, and if not exclusively, heated groundwaters, just meteoric in origin. So certainly through the 70s and well into the 80s, nobody believed that there was any magmatic contribution to epithermals, certainly not to what we now call low and intermediate sulfidation anyway. They were getting uh, meteoric water as well at, at places like Goldfield, Nevada. Yeah. So the, the magmatic aspect was really put on the back burner. And a lot of people didn't believe there was a magmatic contribution to epithermals back then. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that, you know, driven, as you say, by the ice but also by the, the geothermal world to some extent, because they yeah. could visibly see these fluids circulating. Yeah, yeah. no, in, 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 indeed. So, yeah, getting back to your point, I think now in high sulfidations, it's self-evident that they're connected to underlying porphyry systems. And I would say with, without exception, although in a few classic cases, the porphyry system's still not been identified, but only because the system's in, probably insufficiently telescoped, the drilling to date has not reached the porphyry level. And then I think the next step then was, was in, with intermediate sulfidation systems, started to realize that it could hang off the edge of high sulfidation systems, which just brought them into the story as well. Yeah, And I think that the intermediate sulfidation systems in the Lepanto district clearly related to the high sulfidation Lepanto deposit and to the underlying far southeast porphyry copper deposit. And the same age. Yeah, I mean, that was very important. We've already mentioned, of course, the deep scarns and CRDs, carbonate replacement deposits, underneath several of the epithermal intermediate sulfidation systems, which, which ties them in as well. But as you say, the, the low sulfidations, which um, at least Jeff Hedenquist and I believe are representative of extensional settings, sometimes those extensional settings are in arcs or in back arc settings. But as you've already mentioned, some of these extensional settings have no relation whatsoever to uh, to arc magnetism. They're in uh, essentially in intercontinental lip rift setting. And then a bigger question starts to be asked, I think. But even even there, I think there's a case to be made for quite a few of them to be linked very closely with rhyolitic dome. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't prove that there's obviously there's a magmatic fluid involved, but they are at least in, involved and closely with, with the magmatic activity. Certainly raises the question. Just before you go on, I think we need to mention as well the work that was done on the Northern Nevada Rift oh, yeah. in Northern Nevada and into Southern Oregon. I mean, you could, could I don't know whether it's really back arc. I mean, I don't know the the arc was really fully functional when when that rift was operating, which is what about I don't know about eleven, ten or eleven, twelve million years or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But th th those are classic low sulfidation deposits. The magmatism is tholeitic. And, and the fluids are relatively re reduced. And I mean, they've been studied. I mean, the classic papers are Dave John from the USGS and the more detailed mineralogy that Jim Saunders has done over the years on those style of deposits, places like Sleeper and, and others like it. And I think both of them are fully convinced that there's a major magmatic contribution of metals to those systems. I mean, Jim Saunders even goes as far as to say that they're coming from the subduction zone. So, um, and in a way, the Northern Nevada Rift is a bit of an archetype, I think, a bit of an analogy to things at the northern end of the East African Rift in Djibouti and Ethiopia, where we managed to find epithermals in an area that where they were no one had even considered them. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. So that does lead then to one of those enigmas that we come back to and people spend a lot of time thinking about. And that is that in many of these, particularly the low sulfidation, sometimes the intermediate sulfidation as well, we find these dominant quartz veins, sometimes with some carbonate, but dominantly quartz veins, and with very little in them. And then there will be a very, very, very thin little band of sulfide-rich material, maybe a few millimeters thick, with ridiculous concentrations of precious metals. There are a whole host of explanations for that, but of course, it does beg the question of whether there are pulses of some different fluids of a different source, maybe magmatic, that provides kind of the magic moment, the magic juice from these systems. 
Have we solved that puzzle, do you think, or are we? where do you think that's heading? Well, I haven't, but I think other people have come fairly close to understanding them. I think the work that Stuart Simmons did in um, at Fresneo, I mean, he, he recognised you know, they're not really the these gingoro bands, like a Japanese term for these very silver and gold-rich intervals, but there, the, um, in the crusty form veins, the base metal parts of the veins, where all the silver sits, had the magmatic contributions, and the intervening carbonate and quartz was just a bunch of circulating groundwater. Yeah. So certainly there are, I think, special magmatic pulses that are involved. Whether that's the case for Gingaro bands, I'm not really sure, to be honest. I mean, someone like Jeff Hedenquist could probably answer that question better. Or is it just, um, are these just intervals of flash boiling in the system with uh, a, a lot of precipitation of gold and silver? But Jim Saunders' work suggests very clearly that some of this metal in those bonanza-grade bands actually is in colloidal form. So it's, it's not actually in solution in the low salinity fluid that's transporting. It, it, it's actually in as a colloid. And the silica and the native gold are then precipitated. Fascinating idea. Yeah. So um, not something that I can, I can comment, but it's certainly very convincing work, I think. And people have suggested that even in sort of deeper veins as well, to get, again, some of these astronomically high gold concentrations, that you can't precipitate that easily from a, a fluid that's passing by. You really have to have had some intermediate step, concentration step, potentially. Yeah, it certainly makes sense to think in along those lines anyway. Well, I think we're not done with epithermal systems yet. <laughs> they will always be intriguing, particularly because of the bonanza-type grades that they offer. Even when prices are down, people are going to be very excited to find one of these things. Um, absolutely, yeah. That was a very grand history. What else is left in the epithermal systems to really be understood or worked on? What don't we know? We mentioned Silicious Sinter and Lindgren 1900 with his first recognition of it at Milestone in, in Idaho. But since then, we, we've come to recognize other paleosurface features that are indicative of the shallow parts of systems. So the first of that, I suppose, Schoen and White, there were um, steamboat springs and other uh, active systems in Nevada. Um, early 70s recognized steam heated alteration, which is a very powdery, advanced argillic style of mineralization, which forms above water tables, above the groundwater table, by um, condensation of H2S or scrubbing out of H2S in the Vado zone by groundwater descending rainwater in essence. And then the water table itself, under suitable circumstances, given sufficient permeability, you get these extensive zones of silicification, initially opaline and subsequently after inversion, chalcedony in, in composition, barren, except perhaps for mercury, as is the steam heated zone, because at those low temperatures, less than 100 degrees, the only metal, of course, got any volatility is, is mercury, nothing else. So um, recognition of these shallow parts of the systems is now really the frontier of epithermal exploration. And those shallow parts are essentially indistinguishable in low, intermediate and high sulfidation settings. That really is where the frontier currently is. I mean, many, many veins that, that crop out at surface have been tested, but there are a lot that are still potentially concealed beneath these uh, shallow shallow features. Uh, no, that's, a, that's a great point. And that, that continues to be an immense challenge. You can spend a lot of time wandering around on very silicious alteration and to trying to differentiate, obviously, the paleosurface contribution from deeper, deeper products. Challenging in all respects in terms of exploration, sampling, and then conceptually designing drill holes and so on. Yeah, I think the distinguishing them, I think that's just a question really of experience because the minerals tend to be the same, but the textures are distinctive. Yeah. But the complication, I think, from an exploration point of view, these areas, as you say, can be quite extensive. Yeah. And so we don't really have any effective uh, vectors. Unless you're lucky enough to see the sort of the telescope remnant of a deeper part of the system. Yeah, or something hanging out the side that's been exposed by, by lateral erosion. Yeah. But See, in the high sulfidation setting, the very shallow parts of systems have never really been properly studied. People have the advanced argillic alteration below the water table, the lithocap environment, 
there have been several mineralogical attempts to look for zonal features there, but they're very difficult. You know, something like the sodium or the potassium content of alienite, for instance, with the so the sodic alienites, the natural alienite being in the high temperature parts of the systems, or molybdenum being being in, enriched in the more proximal parts of systems. But the problem is that lithocaps are formed by multiple events. Most of them not just single pass systems. So they evolve over time. And we realized that from, I think, from the remnants in the Escondida Porphyry Copper District in Chile, where if, if you join up all the lithocap remnants, you end up with something over 100 square kilometers of lithocap. Incredible. And that formed in probably four or five million years. Very, very difficult to work out which bits related to what's underneath. Yeah, that's a great linkage back to where we started three years ago when we were talking about porphyry deposits. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's where we ended up there, I think, wasn't it? One other thing I should mention, I can feel friends of mine kind of on my shoulder bugging me about it. So certainly in the low and, and often the intermediate sulfidation, structure is incredibly important, obviously controlling veins, but potentially controlling where bonanza veins are. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it it's absolutely it goes almost without saying. I think I would I would extend that to high sulfidation systems as well. Perhaps more evident in low and intermediate sulfidation systems. And the structural geology, I think, is is trying to interpret areas that along the structure that were potentially dilatant at the time of mineralization. So you've got to distinguish that from what preceded and what what was later than the mineralization, which by and large are relatively irrelevant, and trying to interpret those dilatant parts, which obviously is where the bulk of the fluid is, is going to ascend. And of course, that is the, the other, uh, perhaps the only ingredient, apart from indirect methods like some, some geophysical methods, CSAMT, for instance, but the structural aspect when you're dealing with these very shallow surficial features of epithermal systems, if you can work out the structure in the very shallow part, I think it's probably legitimate to project that downwards into the deeper, potentially all-bearing Parts. Absolutely. And then you have the, the added potential to think about, at least, of permeability and horizons and individual parts of the stratigraphy. And then the sort of enigma of an unconformity between perhaps some much more competent rocks beneath your volcanic rocks and how that will change the, the structures and the behavior of structures and so on. So lots of conceptual geology, really, that you can start to think about when looking yeah. at these. Well, I think what you've just said, John, is, is very important. And that's where mapping of these districts is so critical, because chances are there's only certain rock types that are going to be favorable to host ore. And that may be for chemical reasons, or it may be for rheological reasons. So unless you know your stratigraphy, you're not getting our first base, really. And even you and I have to acknowledge that the role of magmas is not as important as understanding that. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's uh, the magmatic aspect. It just makes you makes you feel good when you're in the field. <laughs> <laughs> so, if structure is important, we reached out to Dave Reese, who you heard at the beginning. He's a structural geologist who has worked for 30 years doing detailed and mine-based work in a wide variety of deposits. Dave was also lead author on a paper entitled Structural Controls on Ore Localization and Epithermal Gold-Silver Deposits, a Mineral Systems Approach. He seemed like the right guy to talk to. How did you get to this point and what drives you to keep doing this work? Yeah. So as you know, I started in Vancouver and growing up with, of course, the whole outdoor, beautiful outdoor environment we have here. Geology was a natural thing to become interested in, just to try and understand the landscape. You see active geology, of course, in the Cordillera, both from the point of view of volcanism or mass wasting and the effects of the orogenesis in the Rocky Mountains with all the beautiful exposure of the faults and the folds and so forth. So it was a natural thing to get involved in. And also I was fortunate enough too is to be in an environment where there's a lot of mineral deposits. And that led after my undergraduate to do my master's thesis with the Mineral Deposit Research Unit, which was at the time just starting off the ISCIT project, which provided just an incredible opportunity to work in a district that was just being understood and with an incredible team of people who were running that project with a lot of interest because it was 
a uh, project that has, has an industry, a university and government partnership, which a lot of exposure, a lot of people who were quite senior in mining companies would see the work that we as students were doing. So it provided a network almost immediately. The project that I worked on in my thesis, SNP, which was in an environment where we have porphyry systems, we have vein systems, we have extension, we have a lot of technism and magmatism all going on together. It was a deposit that people were interested in finding other analogies to. So with the network and with the interest in the deposit, it provided me initial work for different clients. Obviously, all the opportunity I had with MDRU and the project there. But early on, working in mine environments in large districts, which allowed me to see deposits three-dimensionally, but also large deposits, what makes an ore body. So I think early on in my career with that mine exposure through initially the work at SNP and then some of my early jobs really helped with the crossover to exploration because it really provided that picture and economic link to why we explore and how we go about exploring. Being able to work in a mine and being able to spend time in detail yeah. mapping underground or doing that kind of work has got to be hugely beneficial. Oh, absolutely. It's almost as if you know, everybody should have to go and do that That's right. <laughs> as part of our professional training, right? It's yeah. not just about logging core, and actual yeah. underground work. It's got to help with all the three-dimensional visualization as well. Most definitely. And at a minimum, just to go on mine tours to, to see some of these things. So let's talk really about epithermal deposits. And you have written the paper, which I'm not sure everyone knows about. Absolutely. So once we put together this review paper, it was really quite apparent that what we were seeing in the structural aspects really tied very nicely to how the perceptions were of epithermal districts in the literature from the chemical aspects, from the alteration aspects. There was a really a very, very strong link. The structural aspects reinforce strongly the understanding of epithermal deposits and districts as is portrayed in the literature. So that was a really encouraging to see it. It's just the revelations coming from compiling the structural data really brought out all those other aspects well. So we're on the right track. Yes. With absolutely. what we know, with what we have said. Is, I think is, so. Is that because of the setting? Because they're higher and nearer the surface, higher in the crust? I think in part, but I guess given that they are higher in the crust, there's oftentimes a lot more factors affecting their style and their position because of climate, topography, host rock, nature of the magmatic hydrothermal systems, tectonic setting. All these things really affect, of course, the local style of a deposit. But once you're in a common environment, there is a lot of commonalities. Can you summarize briefly the differences you see in structural characteristics and the three commonly termed epithermal environments of high, low, and intermediate sulfidation? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the different styles of classifications of epithermal deposits, the, the high, intermediate, low sulfidation systems do have overlap, of course, in structural style, but some common characteristics within each group that is different to each group. And part of them relate to the host rocks they often form in, part relate to the depth of formation. For example, if you look at intermediate sulfidation systems, a lot of them are vein systems, which form at a little deeper below paleo surface than low sulfidation systems. And as a result, you see a lot more fault control to these systems, less interaction with the paleo surface, and internal structural characteristics to them like dilational jogs and fault relays. So really, the morphology of the fault system often really dictates the style of the mineralization at least where ore shoots occur and where you have boiling and dilation related. In low sulfidation systems, because they tend to have more interaction with the paleo surface, you will often see much more in the way of surface alteration. You'll often see these deposits have localized above faults, but the faults, because they're interacting with the paleo surface, and the differential stress decreases as you approach the paleo surface. These things go into opening mode fractures, extensional fractures near surface. And so they often fan upward into these horsetail-like fans, where the fault gradually goes from vertical near surface to more dipping at you know, 45 to 60 degrees at depth. So there's a lot of that interaction. You can use some of the paleo surface indicators and alteration to determine where you are. And you often have paleo water table, less so in intermediate sulfidation systems. So the structural style varies with that. And then in high sulfidation systems, we have 
a more preponderance of disseminated styles. And part of this is because these are often forming in topographically high areas. In recent volcanics, the volcanics associated with them may not be voluminous, but nonetheless, they often occur right in volcanic centers where we have unwelded or unlithified host rocks. And so there's a lot of primary porosity and permeability in the host rock that leads to the lateral fluid flow up from faults, which might be quite discrete and might be dike or breccia controlled that uh, may be associated with flow domes and uh, near surface volcanic features. So really understanding the volcanic stratigraphy becomes extremely important in those environments and the interaction of the faults, which can be controlled by primary volcanic features in those environments. So there's the sort of very general overview of, of some of those oh, differences. All, all three. Yeah. Yes. I mean, high sulfidation to me is the hardest one to crack finding wherever something is focused is always the goal yeah yeah absolutely especially with all the overprinting you get in that near surface environment and the water table can drop there can be a lot of telescoping down to porphyry levels and uh, some of those systems are quite long lived so they yeah they are challenging but i i think you know a lot of these districts do sit in association with vents and so uh, once you understand your volcanic stratigraphy your vent locations these really do help in targeting within those districts particularly for roots that might have higher grade defaults along them beneath them as you can find growth faults things like like that. Right. So going back to vein systems, what are the key aspects for exploration geologists? Are the differences obvious? What's important? Again, it's all gradational. So, yeah. but I think, you know, the, the low sulfidation systems, a lot of them have much shorter vertical height to them. So systems like Kupal, for example, beautiful low sulfidation system, most of the ore there is confined to a vertical height of about 300 meters. And that's about as high as a low sulfidation system tends to get. And there's a lot of others that only have 50 meter ore bands, essentially. So in longitudinal section, you'll see these things are really confined to the levels just beneath right. the paleo water table, about 100 meters to 150 meters. They start tend to start beneath the paleo water table. And often in points where you have those upward inflections of the faults, so they go from moderate to, to steep dips to vertical in the right. surface. So in that sense, they have that common and control, but that's complicated by the fact they often sit under these very broad areas of alteration that you have to find the big faults. And generally in those districts and the intermediate sulfidation districts, if you key into an area, a hydrothermal cell where you have these deposits developed in, the largest faults tend to have the biggest veins, whether it's intermediate or low sulfidation. Now, when you get into the intermediate sulfidation, as I mentioned, because they tend to often form at, at you know, slightly deeper paleodeps, and perhaps, I mean, again, in places like the Sierra Madre in Mexico, there may have been a paleotopographic influence on where the water table was. These systems tend to be showing less in the way of surface indicators. And so I've been on several deposits in Mexico where the controlling fault is actually relatively unimpressive at surface, but you might be standing 100 meters above a gold plus silver deposit that would be, you know, 4 million ounces gold equivalent and not really know it's there. But tracking the alteration along the fault can help you because you can go from clay, elite alteration, for example, to adularia. And as soon as you start seeing adularia, you're getting into the levels of mineralization. And that's for two reasons. One is that it's reflecting the hydrothermal aspects of the system, boiling levels and so forth. But it's also rheological in that alteration basically makes the controlling fault competent and allows veins to form within it. And in low sulfidation systems, you can make the same comment too. And, and some Sometimes the alteration might only be quite narrow to the vein or to the controlling structure, but it's enough to allow the vein to propagate and to keep propagating, to keep that fracture permeability maintained. That makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you go up to the clay alteration, particularly in the low sulfidation systems where we often have these extensive blankets of clay around and above the paleo water table and the silicification that often occurs along the paleo water table. And those act as caps the system because the adularia below which And the adularia, by the way, is often missed. I would say that, as you know from doing petrography yourself, mm. feldspathic alteration is some of the most unrecognized alteration because it doesn't appear spectrally. And people often assume it's silicification because the rock becomes hard. And so that, that adularia window, shall we say, is also a structure, a rheological window for where the mineralization can preferentially form. And you can see that laterally too. And this is where there's a difference between low and intermediate sulfidation systems in that a lot of intermediate sulfidation systems have a greater vertical height to them, probably because they're forming at a bit more depth with less uh, interaction with the paleo surface and the, and the paleo water table. 
And so some of the systems in Mexico, for example, Achuca, Guanajuato, they have you know plus 500 meter long ore chutes. And the ore chute controls there are not just confined necessarily to those short little strata-bound windows that you see in some of the low sulfidation systems. They, they're much more extensive, and sometimes they have steeply plunging chutes that are often at fault relays and jogs. And in those systems, we have Adular extending the full length of those mineralized systems there. And we see more base metals with these, and we see zonation downward into vein systems that often have even weakly developed foliations because you get pressure solution fabrics along some of these. So the structural style is a little different along some of those as well. So, wow. but then in lateral to those, we talked about how low sulfidation systems are almost capped by the clay alteration, of the paleosurface. Some of these intermediate sulfidation systems are laterally restricted by clay alteration along the faults, where let's say a fault that is dilational is pumped all that fluid through with its adularia and maintain a nice hot fluid conduit. Lateral to that, sometimes you can go out and find that over 50, 100 meters, the same controlling fault to the mineralization. And in the mineralization, the fault's obliterated. It's all overprinted by the veining and alteration. You don't even see a fault rock. But you go lateral to that and gradually the vein starts to drop out. You get more and more fault control, cataclastic breaches and ultimately clay gouge. And as soon as you get in that clay gouge, well, that hydrothermal system is being restricted because the clay alteration lateral to it restricts the position of the fluid flow. And essentially, these fluid conduits are self-propagating. They maintain themselves because not only are they faulting and they are channeling the fluid, but the hydrothermal alteration is hotter and we get more adularia, which keeps those conduits rheologically competent versus cooler lateral parts of the system the fault has clay, which be, seals the fault. Seals, and, seals the fault and keeps yeah. it pumping. Exactly. Yeah. So you can go you can go laterally into smectite, you know, from Adularia in some of these these fault systems. And so oftentimes I find people when they're drilling on some of these intermediate sulfidation systems, they don't recognize the controlling structure, the mineralization, because they're looking for veins, they're looking for the right alteration. Right. And they yeah. find smectite or gouge and they say, Oh, we we're in a late not- fault now because it's gouge versus you track it laterally. And a wonderful example of that in the paper is the Palmarejo system in Mexico. The original Palmarejo deposit shows some examples of that, where you can see it laterally, some of these ore chutes that are, are steeply plunging at fault intersections, just grade outward into, into clay gouge. And yeah. so that people can look at this gouge and say, oh, it's a post-mineral fault and try and say, well, it's offsetting the, the vein system. So it, it distracts from the targeting because if you recognize that is one continuous fault, that might change orientation and branch and step, and you want to target along it, if you think it's a little post-mineral structure, you start trying to target differently, and it can it can actually distract you from your ultimate target. One thing I would, would say is that most epithermal deposits occur within fault systems that either have pure normal displacement, dip-slip displacement, or oblique normal displacement, regardless of what environment you find them in, even if you're in contractional arcs. Sometimes they're forming perpendicular to the arc in those environments. So they form an extensional structures, even if the arc is under contraction. But what you'll find is most explorers who are looking for these deposits in a grassroots level, because when we do exploration initially, we don't have a three-dimensional aspect to our understanding of the rock sequence. People tend to use tools such as geophysics and maps, which are all views in plan view. And as a result, tend to interpret everything in a strike-slip sense. And what I find is that that generally falls apart because when you actually get into these districts and they're opened up to mining and you see them three-dimensionally, there's absolutely no evidence of strike-slip displacement on these things. And if you explore these from the sense of trying to impose a strike-slip model on them, you can put yourself in completely the wrong position along some of these structures. Essentially, you need hydrothermal cells. And I think a lot of what we see is, is although faulting can be regional, what we often see around districts is that there's accentuated extension around some epithermal districts. So when you track regional faults, you find that perhaps some of those faults suddenly have way more displacement in the area of the epithermal district than they did laterally. There's higher degrees of displacement. Guanajuato and Pachuca are 
are beautiful examples of this where the, the main controlling faults just dissipate on the outside of the district. So I guess what I'm saying is a combination of, first of all, that faults associated with mineralization tend to have normal displacement. And so you're looking for targets vertically along them. Like if a dilational jog on a normal fault will have a horizontal plunge, so you won't see it at surface. And if you assume that it's a strike slip, you want to look for a strike slip dilational jog, you're going to miss those features. And also too, you want to get on the ground and find the positions where those faults have the maximum displacement in a district, not where you think there's some sort of a bend that strikes slip, but where the fault also has a dip slip component that is high on it, right? And so sometimes what looks like a dilational jog in plan view is actually a fault relay, a linkage between normal faults and may have a blind or shoot on it at depth and not a strike slip dilational jog. So I think there's far too much emphasis in exploration on plan view interpretations. You have to get in the field and look at the three-dimensional nature of these faults and how they interact in hydrothermal cells and what the relative timing is. I know I've been guilty of strike slip. (laughs) (laughs) Mea culpa in the 80s. Yes. It was the thing in the 80s. Yeah, I think that that was the thinking. That's right. And I'm not saying that epithermal deposits don't occur in strike slip environments. If you go to Walker Lane, for example, what you'll find is that they don't occur in the strike slip faults. They occur in the normal faults that bridge the the strike slip faults. And sometimes these could be pull-apart basins, but a lot of the times they're not actually linked with regional strike slip faults. They're they're normal faults forming sometimes right above the volcanic centers. Absolutely. So So I think we go back to what Dick said at the end of our last story on this episode. Structure is everything. Well, it's certainly a big component of it, (laughs) particularly in some of these deeper systems that are fault and vein controlled. Absolutely, because the structure basically allows you to form a fluid conduit in a position and maintain it. And you need time to form a deposit. You need a stable fluid conduit to form a deposit. And so if you maintain a stable site in a fault network, then you can form a deposit in that position. Many thanks, Chris Muller, Richard Silito, John Thompson, and Dave Reese for taking the time to talk to us and share your knowledge. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Next week, we talk to two economic geologists, Isabel Chambefort and Stuart Simmons, who both work in geothermal systems. I'm Ann Thompson, your host and producer. All the episodes are available on the SEG website and most other places you get your podcasts. For information on new releases, be sure to follow the SEG and ALS Goldspot on their social media channels. This episode was produced by your host with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Britt Blumel, Halle Keeble, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.biencamp.com. Thank you for listening. Catch you next time.